to Mark chapter 11. We've been in Mark since the fall. Um, Getting close to the end, pretty close. My commentaries are getting smaller and smaller there at the end, so uh, I know we're finishing up, and and, uh, we should end end in November, I think, mid-November, so... But Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 25 is where we find ourselves today. And I will begin reading at verse 12. This is God's word. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. This is God's word. It's entirely true and it's given to us in love. Let me pray for us. Father, we pray uh, that you would open our eyes and our minds to hear wonderful and glorious things from your word. God, help us to um, not be distracted in our own hearts with whatever may be, uh, whatever we may have carried in here from this past week or whatever we may be carrying um just thinking about the week to come that could easily distract us, easily take our our minds and our eyes and our hearts uh, away from what you would have to show us in your gospel. So God, I pray for each of us now as we dig into your word that you would uh, speak to us from it. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I'm sure you've probably heard, if you see the title of the sermon, you've probably heard uh, the expression, fake it till you make it. And I would guess you've probably all tried to apply that principle at some point in your life. So it's to appear confident about something when you actually have no idea what's going on. It's to appear in the know when really we only know as much as the latest news headline or the social media post of a friend who is way more clever than we are. So we fake it. We fake it to appear to be someone or something we are not. So some of you may be doing that right now. You have spent lots of time and effort into to shaping and molding this identity about yourself that at the end of the day is not real. 
And let me just let you in on a little secret just in case you're missing it. Everyone knows it's fake. They're just not saying anything to you. They all know it's not real. They all know it's a facade. And and I think deep down inside, you know it's fake as well. And the reason you know it's fake is because you are tired. Because you're trying to hold up this false identity. This false reality. You're pretending to be something you're not. Well, this is true in the Christian life as well. You may come to church on Sunday... You may be involved in a Bible study every day of the week. You may come here and sing songs. You may take communion every week. You, may, uh, you, may, you might fellowship with Christians every single week and you have, you have it made. You say all the right things. You do all the right, right things. But at the end of the day, you're faking it. And eventually... That will be laid bare before the people around you, if it hasn't already. And, and I just want to say, that's a good thing. The scriptures are very clear uh, that says, confess your sins to each other so that you might be free. Stop being fake so that you might be free, essentially. Or, if it's not laid bare before those around you in the body of Christ, hopefully it, it is, If it's not, though, it will be laid bare in judgment before God. And that's a terrible thing. It would be a terrible thing to think that you are living a Christian life because you're doing all the right things and saying all the right things that you think are the right things and the right things to do, and to get before Jesus, and he says to you, depart from me, I never knew you. And you'll plead your case. Did I not do these good deeds? Did I not not say the right things? Did I not do this, that, or the other? And Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Well, our passage this morning gives clarity in how to avoid walking in this sort of folly of pretend Christianity. And, and, and it's by walking in faith in the one who has come to seek and save the lost. So I've organized this text this morning around the way Mark has structured this part of his gospel that I, that I believe will help us wrap our minds around this. And the way I structured it is in this way. It's the problem, the visual, and the solution. The problem, the visual, and the solution. So first we have the problem that is laid out before us in verses 12 through 14. And and these are an interesting three verses that I'll just reread for us uh, quickly. Mark is writing, On the following day when they came from Bethany, he, Jesus, was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he, came, when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So it's interesting, interesting three verses there, but they're important to understand because they set up what it is Jesus is trying to teach his disciples and teach his readers, and that's including us right now. So first, Mark gives this observation that Jesus was hungry. 
So Jesus is, is fully God and fully man and in an in a instance like this shows us that he was fully man because he got hungry just like you and I get hungry. So Jesus was hungry and then Mark brings into the picture this prop of a fig tree that Jesus sees from a distance. And then we learn that while from a distance this tree has leaves, it appears healthy. Leaves were a a sign that it could possibly have fruit on it. And upon further inspection, as Jesus and his disciples draw closer and closer to this fig tree in hopes of relieving their hunger, satisfying their hunger, they don't find anything on its branches. It's completely bare except for the leaves. Now, this is interesting because Mark adds in verse 13, it was not the season for figs. It was not the season for figs. So then in verse 14, Jesus curses the fig tree. So at least for me, I'm asking the question, what is going on here? Because it seems a little strange and and a little unfair that Jesus would curse a tree that is not in season to bear fruit. It's not supposed to have fruit on it. It's supposed to be empty of fruit at this particular time. So, we know Mark at this point. We know how Mark writes. We know that he doesn't waste space. We know that he wouldn't put something in the text that would just be confusing and just leave us kind of you know, dumbfounded and we walk away from it. So we know Mark has a point here. But we need to see a couple of things uh, first to, to have this make sense to our 21st century ears. So first, we have to understand that this act of Jesus looking for figs at a season when no figs would be found has a much deeper significance than a failed fruit-picking expedition. That's not the, the, the central point of the text there is not that just Jesus can't find figs in the season. So what Mark is showing us is Jesus' use of what is known as prophetic realism. Prophetic realism. So this is probably not a phrase you have ever used or will ever use again, but it is something, if you read your Bible for any amount of time, it is something you come across, uh, particularly in the Old Testament, because this is something the Old Testament prophets used a lot to make uh, to get their point across to God's people. So you have places like in Isaiah chapter 20, when Isaiah is told to strip down naked and walk before the people of God to make a point to say this is this is what God's God's people look like before him. They are they are humiliated before the nations because they are walking away from him. And so this is a similar act that Mark is implying here. Prophetic realism is when you you take reality as it is and then respond to that immediate reality. So in our text, Jesus is not responding to the fact that figs are out of season. That's not the concern here. Jesus is not taking the time to, to explain, look, I know, I know it's, it's, it, you know, it's, it's not the season for figs, but I have a really important lesson for you to learn through this, so just kind of just hang with me on this and just pretend like it's the season for figs. No, that's not what Jesus is trying to communicate here. Jesus appeals to the immediate reality of a fig tree that from a distance 
looks like a fruit-bearing tree. Because if it has leaves on it, it means it's healthy at some level. But upon closer inspection, the tree is not bearing fruit. It's actually not healthy. And Jesus is doing this so that he's able to communicate the barrenness of worship in the temple, the barrenness of worship uh, of God's people in a place where the worship of God should be flourishing. So this, this kind of language, this kind of um, picture that, that Jesus is, is painting um, to, to the readers here is, is not unfamiliar to first century readers. They would have immediately understood what Jesus was doing here. Because the fig tree was often used by the Old Testament prophets to illustrate Israel's status before God. So they knew as soon as that fig tree popped up in the story, they knew that that Jesus was referring to the people of God, to the church. So the fig tree here is considered an acted parable to Jesus' disciples to illustrate God's people's status before him at this very moment. Jesus is giving them a visual to what he sees happening in the church. So there's lots of people who appear from a distance to have good fruit. You can see the leaves. It appears to be healthy. They say and do things that make you think... They're a Christian. But when you get closer and you start actually looking for the fruits, you then realize it was all a facade. It was all pretend. It was fake. Well, as if to say, let me show you what I'm talking about, Jesus and his disciples enter the temple so that we are able to see the visual In verses 15 through 19. So Mark is using a way of teaching in our text uh, today that is simply referred to as a sandwich method. So he's done this before. We've seen it happen a a few other times or a couple other times in Mark's gospel. Um, In chapter 5, verses 21 through 43, if you remember that story where Jairus is is rushing at Jesus and he's, he's frantic because his child is dying. And Jesus says, I'll go with you. I'll go with you and I will heal your daughter. Well, in the midst of that healing, in the middle of that, you have this woman who has been uh, essentially paralyzed by this bleeding that has been happening in her body. And she stops Jesus. And, and the whole narrative with Jairus just stops right there. And they focus in on this woman who has this ailment until they get back to the story of Jairus. So that's a sandwich method that Mark is using. It happens in chapter 6 when Jesus sends out his disciples two by two to go and, and, and spread the gospel throughout uh, the known world at that particular time. But in the midst of that exciting moment, Mark inserts the martyrdom of John the Baptist. Which is, you think, why does he do that? Well, he has a particular, uh, to particular thing that he is trying to communicate at that point in time. So Mark's use of this method is it's a form of rhetoric known as a chiastic structure. 
So it's often used by writers to, to set the scene uh, and draw the reader into the core of what the, the author is trying to communicate. So you could say you're, you're taking them from the outer courts into the inner courts when you use this type of method of teaching. So Mark is using this method in exactly how it is meant to be used here. He is bringing the reader into the core of what Jesus is showing his disciples. Uh, literally doing that. He, he is bringing them actually physically into the temple. And this is where Jesus wants us to set our eyes. This isn't about a fig tree. But about the hearts of those who claim they are believers in God, but they actually are not. So why does Mark put verses 15 through 19 here? Why not keep the teaching of the fig tree together? We would eventually get it. We've read the parables. We understand that. But Mark is leading us to see the connection here between the pretend nature of the fig tree, who has the leaves but no fruit, and the pretend nature of those who claim to be God's people. So this is where you might start to see yourself in the text. You might begin to ask the question, am, am I pretending? Am I, am I being fake? And I, Am I truly uh, God's child? Because this is what Jesus wants you to see. He wants you to see how easily it is to fall into this false idea of spirituality. If you recall the scene of Jesus' disciples when Jesus, at the end, we'll get there eventually in Mark, but when Jesus is sitting around with his disciples and he says to, to his disciples, he doesn't point anybody out at this particular moment, but he says to his disciples, one of you will betray me. One of you will betray me. What do his disciples do? They all ask, is it me? Am I, am I going to betray you, Master? Am I going to betray you? None of them say, of course it's Judas. We know that guy. Of course, they all think they are guilty and they are all right. And we're all right to be thinking the exact same thing at this very moment. This is where Jesus wants us to be. He wants us to see this false idea of spirituality. He wants us to see if we uh, are grasping onto um, what a friend of mine calls a gospel light Christianity. People who pretend to be healthy but really aren't. So, how do we see that in verses 15 through 19? Because I've heard these verses, and I'm sure you have as well, used over and over again by people who like to justify their anger towards people. Or maybe it's towards their children or towards their spouse. And they're, they're able to say, it's a righteous anger. You know, Jesus got angry in the temple. He, he even made, it doesn't say it here, it's in John's Gospel, but he even made a whip and like drove people out of the temple and flipped over tables. And maybe you've used that as an excuse in your uh, sinful, angry outburst. So if that's, if that's where you are in that, you are completely missing the, the point of the passage here. That is not what Mark is trying to get us to see. What Mark is pointing out 
is Jesus' anger and where it's directed. Jesus' anger is directed toward what is happening in his father's house. What is happening in the church of God. So instead of worshiping the one true God in the space specifically dedicated to this, the people of God, while they may be practicing the outward signs of their, of their religion, they are at the same time making profits in taking advantage of the gathered body there. Now what Jesus is concerned with here is a misshapen worship. A fake Christianity, we would say now. Because for God's people, the the temple was the central place of worship in Jerusalem, both physically and spiritually. Physically, it was located uh, in a central uh, part of, of the city. Like, people would walk by it. They knew what the temple was all about. They didn't have other temples that people could go to if they got upset with the priest at the main temple and the programming that was happening there. The temple in Jerusalem was the temple. It was the only place that the Jews had to go and worship. That was the only place they had. And because of this, smart and savvy businessmen and women sought to take advantage of the large crowds that were gathered there and these savvy businessmen and women were not just were not outsiders these were Jews taking advantage of Jews so needless to say that from a distance the temple was hopping And Jesus and his disciples, as Jesus and his disciples make their approach, they're seeing from a distance, I'm sure, what looked like a temple that was thriving. As people entered and and exited and they they were getting their sacrifices. I mean, that's what they were buying. And they were worshiping God. They were going through the outward practices and things looked healthy from a distance. But as they got closer and closer, the truth became clearer and clearer. That while it looks healthy from a distance, meaning the leaves are there, you can see them. Upon further inspection, it's barren. No fruit is in the temple. And we can say Jesus' response is the exact same response he has towards the fig tree. His passion for his father's house is what drives him to chase out the profit makers. His zeal for the true and real church of the living God is what causes him to clear the temple of fake worshipers. And sadly, churches are still full of them. This is why Paul, before he, before he leaves the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, this is why Paul leaves them with this warning. He says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And here's the, the further warning. I know, Paul says, I know 
that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up even from your own number and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. It's happened here. In five years, we've had wolves, savage wolves, rise up among us to try to do that exact thing. And it can happen just like that. I have a dear friend who recently said to his wife how he really struggles with the church as an institution because, quote, they have been they have been some of the ugliest and most difficult people to work with and be around. This is a man who's a believer, loves Jesus, has worked in the church, has been a part of the church most of his life. To which his wife truthfully responded, <clears throat> it's so unfortunate because she, the church, is the bride of Christ and she can be so awful. You probably know that for a fact. You've probably been hurt by a church. I know I have. So we're not exempt from this reality that Jesus is trying to place our eyes on. And let me just be honest and say that we have to be careful not to allow ourselves to get to this point that my friend described. Especially during this time of unrest. I jokingly say that the, we can blame everything on the, on the coronavirus, but at, at, in a lar- at a large kind of big picture overview, it really is that. It's really bringing to the surface some things that we are really and personally wrestling with as people and as the church. So let's not reach the point that we are biting and devouring one another because someone may say something or do something that you may not agree with. Silly things. Not even anything to do with doctrine or the gospel. Because otherwise we end up just like my friend's description. The ugliest and most difficult people to be around. That is not what we want at Christ the King Church. Because Jesus is telling us here that a church like that is not a real church. It's fake. It's pretend. It might have leaves from a distance, but no fruit is being produced. Why? Because they're more concerned with their own personal safety and comfort. They're more concerned with making more money than caring for others. They're more concerned with being right than with relationships. They're more concerned with the worship of the things of this world rather than the worship of the one who made this world. And what does Jesus do to a church like this? He clears them out. He clears them out. So, if what is going on in the temple is pretend, what is real, and then how do we distinguish the two? So, what is the solution? 
Well, Jesus helps us with the solution by giving us a clear mark of true Christianity in these final verses, in verses 20 through 25. Let me just read those for us again. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you curse has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So first question that I asked when I was studying this part of the text was, how does Peter's comment about the withered tree have anything to do with how Jesus responds to his observation. Because when, Je- when Peter makes the observation, Jesus immediately responds with no explanation. He just says, have faith in God. Have faith in God. Because Jesus' point is if you don't have faith in God and yet choose to pretend like you do, you will be cursed and withered just like the fig tree. So what does that faith look like? Look at verse 23. Jesus says, have faith in God. And then he goes on. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Now, some Jewish texts um, give us a good explanation of this because I know that looks like you're like, I, I do not have faith like that. I, I can't, I'm not going to pray for this mountain. I don't have faith to, to move a mountain in that way. So some Jewish text gives us some good explanation as to what Jesus is, is doing here. So this, this phrase of moving mountains is to explain something that is uh, a human task that is seemingly impossible to do, is, is what that means. So essentially they would use a phrasing like this to exaggerate that which appeared humanly impossible. So my oldest daughter is a junior, but she's starting a college class. And so I talked to her this week about syllabus shocks. So some of you college students know about that. As we were about to print out her 30-page syllabus of work that she has to do in the next um, in the next in the weeks to come. And at first glance, you might look at a syllabus like that and say, this will be impossible to complete. There is no way humanly possible that I will be able to do this work. It is like moving a mountain. That's how you would you would use that expression. So so what Jesus is simply saying here is nothing, not even moving a mountain in your prayers will be too hard for the person of faith to believe. So why faith? Why does Jesus give the solution, have faith in God? Because we could put a period there and end the text there if we wanted to. And that would be sufficient. So uh, if, you, if you're keeping up with us in our study of, of Mark, you'll notice that faith comes up a lot 
in Mark's gospel. It's the way in which when these people are healed by Jesus, Jesus says to them, your faith has made you well. Your belief in who God is and what He has come to do in Christ, that is what has made you well. And so faith comes up over and over again. And in my Bible reading this week, um, it has me in the book of Romans. And I was reminded of the benefits of faith. And probably specifically, I was reminded of what does faith do? What does it do? And so for that, I wanted to turn to Romans chapter 4, verse 20 through chapter 5, verse 5. So you're kind of getting a sermon within a sermon here, guys, so you're welcome. But not, but not a long second sermon. But I think this helps us with what it means to, when you just say, have faith in God, you say, well, what does that mean? What does that look like? And so I think Paul does a good job of explaining that here. So starting in verse 20 in Romans chapter 4, Paul is, Paul is talking about Abraham's faith here. Okay, he's talking about Abraham's faith, and then he's going to move into talking about our faith, which is the exact same faith that Abraham has. It's not different. It's the exact same one. So Mark 4, verse 20, Paul writes, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So as Paul leaves this description of Abraham in chapter 4 and moves into our faith in chapter 5, he essentially answers the question, what does faith in God do? What does it do? Well, verse 1, he immediately tells us in chapter 5 there of Romans, we are justified by faith. And then Paul defines what does it mean to be justified. It means that we have peace with God in Christ. That's what it means. So we are justified by faith. And now most people stop there. Most people who call themselves Christians only believe that uh, justification uh, by God in Christ, that it only applies to those who don't yet know Jesus. And so they stop there. And they believe that after you've been justified, after you've been saved, after you've become a Christian, after you've walked that aisle, whatever it may be, that now it's up to you to kind of keep this thing going. It's up to you to kind of hustle and do the work and to make yourself 
continue to just have this sort of zeal and action. But then you get to verse 2. And you get to verse 2 that tells us that by faith, again, by faith, we have obtained access into this grace. And this grace, Paul is talking about, is the justification that we have in Christ. This peace that we have with God in Christ. So what this means is that our faith in God reminds us of our day-by-day Moment by moment. So it's not just happening on Sunday. It's not just happening on Wednesday. It's not just uh, happening when you have your quiet time in the morning. But it's day by day, moment by moment, need of our justification in Christ. We need the gospel every day and in every moment. And this, Paul says, causes us to rejoice again and again in the hope of the glory of God. So verse 3, and we're almost done for those of you with kids. This is important. Paul now says, because you have been justified by faith and obtained access to this grace by faith that causes you to rejoice in God's glory, Paul says, check this out. Remember when you didn't have faith in God? Remember when you were locked in darkness? And how your suffering made you react in fear and anxiety and all sorts of irrational ways? Remember that? You thought suffering was a waste. You thought suffering was just something you just merely had to just hang on and wait until it was over. And now Paul says... Now you can, by your faith in God, rejoice in suffering. Because you are standing, because you are standing in, in your justification by faith, you now have eyes of faith to see that your suffering is not a waste. It's not just something you get, get through, but it's a means in which God is drawing you closer to Christ. Paul says it. He says, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. That's what suffering does. That's what belief in God does. Does That's why Jesus wants to say that to us. That's why that's his first response to Peter's reaction, to Peter's observation is have faith in God. Have faith in God. Because God uses all things in your life for your good and for his glory. And yes, that includes the coronavirus. That includes the, 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 the social unrest that we are experiencing in our country around race. That includes all of those things. God is using those to draw us closer to Christ. But it takes faith to see this. J.C. Ryle 
wrote this in his commentary on this, actually his sermon on this particular passage, but he wrote this in his sermon. He says, Let us always remember that baptism and church membership and reception of the Lord's Supper and a diligent use of the outward forms of Christianity, the spiritual disciplines, we would call them, are not sufficient to save our souls. They are leaves, nothing but leaves. And without fruit will only add to your condemnation. Do you want real fruit growing from your branches? Have faith in God. Let me pray. Father, thank you that having faith in you is not just some empty command that you give us that we are to try to try to figure it out, try to search for it uh, on